Can't top that. <laughs> Please pray with me. I'm, old, I'm still going to preach. Just because just I can't top it doesn't mean I ain't going to do something. So. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and the power of it. We pray that your spirit would be with us. Open our minds and our hearts to receive the gospel of the Lord. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name's Rob Sturdy, in case you missed it. Been here a few times. I think I come back at least one more time, uh, although I have the spiritual gift of disorganization, so I couldn't tell you. Um, But I'm pretty sure one more time. And so uh, I've enjoyed being with you. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed me being with you. But if you haven't, I'm only coming back a few more times. So, you know, you just stick it out. It'll be over soon. Pew Research published April this year. You might have seen it. Uh, public trust in government is at a historic low. Doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, millennial, Gen X, or Boomer. Doesn't matter if you're white or black or Hispanic. Diagram shows an erosion of public trust uh, beginning, according to Pew, in the 60s. And this is a, a, about a 60-year bear market of public trust. Bottoms out recently at 3%. Think about this, 3% of Americans, 3% say they trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. 3%. The crisis of leadership and public trust is not just about the government, but you find it uh, in the business world. A recent study found 56% of employees are going to endure a toxic work environment at some point during their lifetime. Another study conducted by the University of San Diego, found that one in five corporate executives display sociopathic tendencies. So you've got a a problem of public trust in the private sector as well. And some of you might be sitting here with, well, the church will show the way out of this mess. And, And that's not true either. We are not immune to this problem. The problem of abusive clergy, which the Roman Catholic Church was a scapegoat for for so long, that bubble's been burst. And now we've discovered that we have clergy problems across denominations, including our denomination. That's not a new thing, by the way. There's a story, I don't know if it's true, but Napoleon Bonaparte has gone to visit a cardinal that he put in jail. He's trying to get the cardinal to make concessions to him. And Napoleon says to the cardinal, Your eminence, are you not aware I have power to destroy the Roman Catholic Church? To which the cardinal replied, Your majesty... The clergy have been trying to destroy the church for 1,800 years. (laughs) We've not succeeded, neither will you. So uh, a good leader in government or work or church or sports or family uh, is a gift. And some of you have experienced the gift of good leadership through one of those venues. But but sadly, many of us, uh, the all too common experience with leadership is that if it is to be thought of as a gift, it's a lump of coal. You know, many of us have had bad experiences with leadership. Leadership can be disappointing. It can sometimes be abusive. Occasionally, it can be downright criminal. As Mark Twain, who once quipped, it could probably be shown by facts and figures, there's no distinctly American class of criminals except Congress. (laughs) Apologies to the congressmen that may be here at the 9 o'clock service. If Mark Twain had met you, he never would have said it. We still seek out leaders. Despite all their problems, 
you and I still seek out leaders, don't we? Despite all their problems, uh, some of us aspire to be leaders. So how do we go about addressing this leadership problem in terms of how do we find someone worth following? How do we find somebody we can model our own leadership after? Where is such a thing to be found? Well, uh, in the series on the Nicene Creed, we're talking about the Ascension today. And the Ascension has a lot to say about the issues we just discussed. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. They're nice enough to print it off for you here. I really like that. I wasn't always a Christian, and I really hated when the minister would say, turn to such and such book in the New Testament. It'd take me about 30 minutes to find it, which is around the time he wrapped up. But you have it printed. Luke chapter 24, 36 to 53. While they're saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were terrified, terrified and afraid. They thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you startled? Why are doubts rising in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me, see me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Because they were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. Taking it, he ate it in front of them. So the reading begins with while they were saying these things. What are they saying? What's the conversation? Well, this, this conversation, this event we're reading about today happened sometime in between Easter and the actual ascension. And that gives us about a 40-day window for this conversation. I think it probably happened this, I think it probably happened about a week, maybe two weeks after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it says, while they were saying these things, here's what they were saying. Mary Magdalene is saying, the man who was crucified, who did die and was buried, is raised. I've seen him with my own eyes. That's the conversation. The conversation is Peter saying, I can confirm that. I saw him too. And to them, we can add two others on the road to Emmaus who say they have seen Jesus, he's alive, and he's well. That's what they're talking about. Now, while they're talking about that, Jesus actually shows up in the midst of them, and he says, peace be with you. And it's when he speaks to them and appears to them that we learn this fantastic truth, the fantastic truth about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has not really sunk in yet. It has not even sunk in to the people who said that they saw him with their own eyes. How do we know it didn't really sink in? Because the very first thing that Jesus says to them is, why are you startled? Why are doubts arising in your hearts? After all they have been through, after everything they've seen, after three years with Jesus, after a crucifixion, after some of them seeing the resurrection, they're still skeptics. They still don't believe. If we were to say the Nicene Creed with the disciples while they were having this conversation, they wouldn't be able to say it without crossing their fingers because they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, we could forgive Jesus for being frustrated. We could forgive him for losing his temper. 
we could forgive him for being disappointed. Those of you who have attempted to lead people know that leading people can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. It can make you angry. And maybe you're sitting here frustrated with the disciples. What do they need to believe? But I want you to know that Jesus does not get disappointed with them. He is not frustrated with them. And he does not lose his temper. He invites them to touch him. He invites them to see him. He invites them to eat with them. And and eating might seem like a strange thing to do. But it's got a very simple point because it says they're startled. Why are they startled? They thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus eats with them, to put it very bluntly, because ghosts don't have digestive tracts. Jesus has teeth. He can mash a fish. He has a tongue that he can taste with. He's got a throat that he can swallow with. He's got a stomach that can digest a fish. And slowly, over the course of a conversation and a meal, the skeptics start to believe. What does this have to do with leadership? Well, I'm so glad you asked. I don't know if you ever saw the movie We Were Soldiers Once and Young. It's, it's based off a really fine book uh, written by Joe Galloway and Lieutenant General Hal Moore. It's about their, their tour in Vietnam. And there's a scene in the film where uh, Hal Moore and his Sergeant Majors, Colonel Moore at the time, his Sergeant Major Plumley, they're watching the new lieutenants in, uh, in their training. And one of the young lieutenants, he leaps out of a trench throws his hand into the air, and he says, come on, boys, and he he runs into the woods, and Sergeant Major Plumley swears under his breath, and he says, that boy's out there chasing medals. He's going to get a lot of people killed. And if, if you've read the book and seen the movie, you know that's what happens. Chasing medals, he gets a lot of people killed. Well, the camera pans over to another young lieutenant, and he's on his knees, and his men are on a bench. He's, he's below them. They're above him. They have their shoes off and their bare feet in his face. Those of you who've served in the military know what he's doing. He's doing a blister check. He's doing a blister check. And what Sergeant Major Plumley says is, there's your leader. What's it teach you about leadership? You can't follow anybody with blisters. You can't follow anybody if you're wounded, if you're hurt, if you're broken, if you're beat up. And these disciples have been through a lot. They are wounded and broken and beat up. They have doubts. Jesus could have easily left them behind on the way to his own glory. He doesn't need them. But Jesus is doing the equivalent of a spiritual blister check. Because he's not going to leave anybody behind. You know, he promised that in John's Gospel. He says, I'm not going to lose anybody that the Father has given me. And I know that some of you have doubts. And sometimes those doubts turn into wonderings. If this is all true, is what I have going to be acceptable to him? Some of you have deep indwelling sin that hasn't been found out yet. You know, but not everybody else knows. And you're wondering, is this going to be a handicap too severe for me to get to the finish line? 
Some of you have been beaten up and abused by the church or by a Christian, and it has really made all of this problematic, hasn't it? I know all about that. Well, I'll tell you what. Jesus having a conversation with these men and these women, letting them touch him, letting them see him, eating with him, is proof that he has a very rare quality that you want in your leaders. He has humility. He's not chasing medals, and he's not going to lose anybody. That's number one. Jesus said to them, These are my words I spoke to you. This is in verse 44. While I was still with you, everything written about me in the law, from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, This is what it is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. Look, I'm sending you to what my Father promised, but you're to stay in the city until you've been furnished with heavenly power. Jesus, it says it, it took them through the law and the prophets, and what that meant for Jesus was, was the entire Old Testament. So, so that's the whole Old Testament, and it says that Jesus walked them through the whole thing. And he pointed out everything that pertained to his life and his death and his resurrection. Jesus fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. There was a, a mathematician and, uh, and an astronomer, and he calculated the odds of one person fulfilling only eight of the Old Testament prophecies. His name was Peter Stoner. And of course, you can fulfill some of the prophecies intentionally. Any of you could buy a plane ticket to Jerusalem and rent a donkey and ride it into the city. Any of you could do that. But you can't control where you're born, can you? You can't control who your parents are. His parents were in the line of David. You can't control how you're going to die. Jesus fulfilled myriad prophecies that he had no control over. Peter Stoner said that just eight of them, there was only a, a one in a hundred million billion odds of, of, of a person doing that. But of the 48 prophecies mentioned in the New Testament, the odds are, are greater than one in several trillion trillion that one man would fulfill all the prophecies. Jesus is walking them through all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he's demonstrating how he fulfilled it, and they know that he fulfilled it because they had been there with him. And the other thing that he's doing is he's, is he's going through the whole Old Testament. These prophecies, you could take them as God's agenda, God's government platform. This is what I'm about. And the startling news at the end of this conversation is, do you want to know who, what God's agenda is? God's agenda is Jesus Christ. That's his agenda. That's been the plan the entire time from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God's agenda. He's sitting there at dinner with him. He said, God's agenda has always been about me. And our agenda is that the forgiveness of sins and transformation of the heart is to be preached to the whole world. And he says it's got to start in a very particular place. Where does he say it's got to start? Jerusalem. You know why that's significant? 
probably significant for a lot of ways, but there's a, there's a man named John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That's probably how you know him. But he also wrote a book called Grace Abounding for the Chief of Sinners. And what John Bunyan said in that book is the news of forgiveness and the transformation of the heart needs to come to the people who need it most first. Who needs to hear a word of forgiveness more than the city, which two weeks ago said, we don't want him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And now rumors are flying through the city. The guy that you said crucify is alive. He's invested with cosmic power. You think that city's shaking in its boots? What does Jesus want the city to know? Peace be with you. Peace be, it's okay. My agenda is forgiveness. The transformation of the heart, that's my only agenda. After that, he led them out as far as Bethany, where he lifted his hands and he blessed them. As he blessed them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem, overwhelmed with joy, continuously in the temple praising God. He blessed them, and then he ascended into heaven. Where's Jesus right now? Well, you know, Yuri Gagarin, the Russian cosmonaut, he was the first man in outer space. And you know what he had to say about his trip to outer space? I went up into heaven and I looked around. Guess who I didn't see? I didn't see Jesus. And he thought this was a great irrefutable proof against the divinity of Jesus Christ. A lot of Christians think about the ascension in the same way. A lot of Christians think about the ascension as we are all on the lower level of, of the hotel. And Jesus got in the elevator and he pressed up and now he's in the penthouse. And what the ascension means is that he's up there and that we're down here. And one day, through faith in Jesus, we too can go to the elevator and, pre and we can go up to the penthouse with him. But that's actually not what the ascension means at all. The ascension means a lot more than that Jesus changed locations. Where are you most likely to use this word ascend? We don't use it much in America, but you would... You would use it in countries where you had a monarchy, wouldn't you? So-and-so has ascended the throne. And it certainly means when you ascend the throne, you change position. You were there, but now you're up there. You were five feet down there, but now you're five feet up there. But that's not what the ascension really means, is it? When you ascend the throne, what it means is your relationship with that country has changed. You were not the ruler, now you are the ruler. And when Jesus ascends, what Luke is telling us is that he has become the ruler of the whole world. Whether that world chooses to acknowledge him or not. And he rules in a very specific way. Sometimes that's misunderstood, even by Christians. I used to live in Myrtle Beach and there was a, a, a billboard, and if you've known me for a while, you've heard me reference this billboard. It's a hilarious billboard. It's Jesus being crucified, which is not funny. But this Jesus is shredded. He's been on like a 10-week juice cleanse, and he might be on some performance-enhancing drugs. He has enormous muscles, and he's, he's breaking the cross in two. And the billboard says, you drew first blood, but I'll be back. 
Now, I noticed there's some young people who were not exposed to the 80s. You totally missed the reference, and that's fine. You need to rent Rambo later today, and then you'll get it. What's it saying? Well, what, what that's saying is, you know, you won the first time, but he's coming back, and he's going to kick your butt. That's how he rules. Well, you won't get that from the Bible. What it, what it missed is the same Jesus who's crucified on Friday, he's the same one who's raised on Sunday, he's the same one ascended 40 days later. John tells us in his revelation that everything is healed and restored except the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Why in the world would, they, why in the world would God never restore the, hand, the wounds on the hands and the feet? John looks at him in his vision and revelation, knows he's invested with cosmic power. So I look at him and, he, and it's the Lion of Judah. And then John keeps looking at him and he says, no, it's a lamb that was slain. Enormous cosmic power with enormous humility, sacrifice, and love. And, and Jesus' governing strategy, now that he is over all things, now that he's ascended to the throne, not just of the, the world, but the universe, and, and universes beyond our knowledge. He's ascended over all things. His governing strategy is no different than his governing strategy on Good Friday. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You might think that's a pretty weak governing strategy, but I don't think it is. You know, in Alabama, back in the 50s and 60s, they wanted to get some things done. They wanted an African-American to go to the University of Alabama, and so the president sent the 82nd Airborne down to make sure it happened. And guess what? The brave young woman got to go to college. Nobody's hearts were changed by that. You know who changed some hearts down in my beloved home state of Alabama? A man named Martin Luther King Jr. on a trip down there. And, and, and he said this in Alabama. I'm going to read it to you. I've seen too much hate to want hate myself. Every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow we must be able to stand up against our most bitter enemies and say, we're going to match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure it. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, we will still love you. But be assured, we are going to wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience so that we will win you in the process. Our victory will be a double victory. Who do you think he learned that from? Don't you think I could call legions upon legions of angels down from heaven and I could have my victory? But I want a double victory. I want the kingdom and you. It's a much harder victory, isn't it? Much more circuitous route. Hurts a lot more. But Jesus, Jesus matched our capacity to hate him with his capacity to love us. And he's been governing the world in the same way, not in a different way, in the same way for 2,000 years. Samuel Rutherford said that the Lord Jesus Christ has been knocking on the door of the human heart for 2,000 years. His arm's not worn out yet. It's not going to get worn out either. 
He's going to have His kingdom. He's going to have you too. He's going to have a double victory. That's the way the Lord Jesus governs. And so, in the ascension, we learn that we have a man whose character will not leave us behind nor let us down. The agenda is the man. So we can be proud of it. And he governs in such a way that those who've been governed by it immediately want to participate in it. It's the ascension of the Lord Jesus that solves so many of our leadership problems. So when you say, we believe, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, now you know it means so much more than he pressed an elevator button and went to the penthouse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ascension of the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would not only worship the leader you've given us, but we would aspire to be like him and extend his government with his strange and peculiar ways. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.